create momentum. That's what startups are. <laughs> like startups are momentum. And that's everything from recruiting to raising money. It's like, if you're showing momentum, you're gonna be able to get people excited and people behind you, and you're gonna be able to raise money. That's Asher Hunt, founder and CEO of Overnight, a platform to book homes from people you trust. Asher comes from a visual arts and music background, but got into tech through product design. Asher's career has been driven by a passion for learning. He was a product designer at Chill, a viral video sharing platform, and then he launched his own product, Look.io, which was later acquired by LivePerson. He's now back as a founder, building a friend and community-driven home sharing platform called Overnight. What Asher is talking about is how startups need to create momentum to carry them through the toughest challenges, something that takes a lot of time and determination to create. This is Hack to Start podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today we're speaking with Asher Hunt, the founder and CEO of Overnight, a platform that focuses on making it easy to share your home with friends and trusted communities. Asher joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it was like taking one of his first startups, Look.io, from a startup weekend idea to acquisition in just eight months, what it's been like working on Overnight, how he manages being a product designer and CEO, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Asher, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for reaching out and having me on. Yeah, we're super excited uh, about it and get to learn, you know, more about you and what Overnight's all about. But before we dive into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Totally. So I'm kind of from a little bit of all over. I, I grew up mainly in LA. I lived in New York for a bit when I was younger. I actually went to high school and some college in like a really small, like rural town in North Carolina. It was kind of like, you know, the quintessential town that was like destroyed by Walmart, um, <laughs> really in the middle of nowhere. But I went to, to college out there as well. And what, what I studied really is probably atypical for most people that are, you know, entrepreneurs or like, you know, leading kind of tech teams or tech companies. Uh, I studied classical guitar and oil painting. Okay, okay. Which is <laughs> that's a legit combo. Yeah, total combo. And of course, I seem to be the only one that was kind of this is like a little bit of a reversal, right? You know, I think a lot of people are just like, well, what are you going to do after school? How are you going to get a job and this and that? And I, really, I was putting that pressure on myself. Nobody seemed to be concerned with me, like being able to make it kind of after I got out of school. But I was like, I needed to do something different. Meanwhile, when I was painting, like I was painting since I was a child. Like my heroes were like Picasso, Rembrandt, Monet. And by the time I was 13, you know, I was taking master's classes with people that were gallery artists and like getting their, you know, MFAs and stuff. So it kind of came naturally. And it was like the, the path of least resistance was school. Uh, and while I was in school, it was really, I got my education with just like side projects and like projects and like constantly thinking of different ideas. And that study really kind of led to me doing design and realizing that design was kind of an innate skill. Uh, I didn't really have to put too much effort towards it. Yeah, for sure. That's really cool. And so I guess through that discovery of like the design side, like how did you fall into the tech side? So the tech side, dude, I got into tech, like, I feel like there's like a whole wave of people that got into tech after the social network came out. <laughs> yeah. 
that it was right around the time of startup weekend and all these other things. I got into tech really, I had no idea the first thing about the tech industry or the tech world. Like I, I was working in music actually, and I had an idea for these like I saw all these like overly complex deals that were happening in licensing and music licensing. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like a really stupid problem because a lot of these deals are overly complex for no reason. It's actually the same things over and over and over and over again. So I was like, huh, let me see if I could put together something that would try and solve this problem. And then I realized that like, you know, having developed that kind of like aesthetic eye that really from painting, like the design side of it came easy. So I focused more on solving the problems, knowing, and it created a positive feedback loop, knowing that that like design side of things was like, came pretty easy. So the first thing that I did was I started a music licensing company uh, without knowing anything really about tech or anything like that. And I was like, I just have this crazy idea. Let me see what I could do. So my first thing was a product and it was uh, helping people list their songs and get and easily just license their songs out for various different reasons. But that was my first kind of foray into it. It was, it was rough learning because I didn't know anything at all. So it was just roadblock after like roadblock after roadblock of just like trying to like learn my way through. Sometimes that's the best way though. So beyond that first experience, what were some of your first few jobs or startups? How did you approach starting your career? Yeah. So when I graduated, I full on thought I was going to be like working in the music business. And this was in 2000 and 2006, I think, or 2007. I don't really remember exactly, but this is like right when the music industry was bottoming out. I was like, oh, this kind of sucks. Like, I'm not going to get a job in music. I did five internships by the time I graduated, all for free, like Rhino, Sony BMG, like Jive Records. And a bunch of cool labels. And, you know, that was fun, but I didn't know where or how I was going to get a job. So I just kind of did what I could to stay afloat. You know, I was like waiting tables and like, you know, hacking on random like side projects, trying to like just always learn as much tech as possible. And I finally found this group of guys that were like, turns out uh, some of like the foremost like like cybersecurity experts in the world. And I was like, these guys are going to be ones that I could work with that I could learn a ton about tech. So they started an agency because agency work was paying better than cybersecurity work at the time. And through that, I was able to start to learn a little bit more HTML and CSS and like figure out how to actually like build something. I've always been obsessed with just like how to get as close to the metal as possible with whatever it is that I'm trying to build. So as soon as I felt like I had enough knowledge to like, okay, this is gonna carry me to the next step where it's like, now I think I know enough to go start my next thing. And then I left. And then uh, I, I want to say started a company, but it wasn't never really formed into a company. Really, it was a marketplace, a lot like uh, OfferUp or like any of these like other kind of like local, you know, buy furniture from somebody who's like trying to sell at garage sale kind of a things. And I built an MVP for that and shopped it around LA, and there were, didn't know any investors or anything like that. So it got to a point where I'm like, okay, I was working out of a co-working place. I wasn't able to survive anymore. I'd spent like three months. I didn't have a lot of runway personally then trending towards eating on the dollar menu and I need, need to figure something out. So maybe my best bet is to get around a great team. So I met with a guy in LA who is now, he's a close friend and he's been a really, really great mentor to me. But uh, he started a company called Chill. And at the time it was like a social video product and 
that was a pretty wild ride. So when I joined, like after joining, I was able to get with like a world-class team of like designers, engineers, guys that I'm like, all right, I'm going to be able to learn a ton from these guys. It was like a Pinterest for video. And this thing ended up just taking off tens of millions of users over the course of like eight weeks. And it was the right place for me to be. And I learned a ton when it came to building, getting around some of the right people, starting to build like a really good network. It's like having momentum and having like a great product. Like people will kind of gravitate towards you and you'll build, you could, you know, build a great network off of that, which is ultimately like what I kind of needed to do at the time. And that was helpful. And I really got to focus in on like developing my chops around like product and design and engineering. That's awesome. It's really cool to hear your story about getting into tech and constantly trying to level yourself up. Yeah, it's important to, I think, surround yourself with people that are uh, way better at what they do than you are at what you do, because you'll inevitably learn a ton from them. Yeah, I completely agree. So you were then part of the founding team at Look.io, which was later acquired by LivePerson. Can you start off by telling us a little bit more about Look.io and how it came all about? I mean, it was so fast. That was the most outstanding and unique possible experience. It started off as like a startup weekend project that within three and a half months or so, the first customer was like Hotel Tonight. And then by, I think, month five or six, there was an LOI to buy the company. And by month eight, the deal was done. It was like concept acquisition, eight months. This was all while I was working on Chill. It was a really unique situation where Chill put on a million users in like a day. And then all of a sudden, Look.io has a lot of acquisitive interest. And something that just started off as like a side project or a startup weekend project is all of a sudden getting a ton of traction. And Chill is also getting a lot of traction and didn't really know what the right move was necessarily going to be at that time. It was like the most unique and like stressful scenario. Mind you, by the way, like, when I was living in rural North Carolina, like, dude, when I was 19, I was fired from Walmart. And like now all of a sudden, like one group of friends and I are building Look.io and that's going through an acquisition. And then like on the other side of it is like another group of friends and I are building Chill and that's like exploding. I think it was growing faster than Pinterest at one point in time. The net of that ended up being one day, you know, after we signed the letter of intent to, uh, to sell Look.io, I resigned from Chill and that was tough. That was like a really, really tough thing to do and to decide on, but it ended up being the right decision for me. As you can imagine, like definitely a hard place to be in, but that, that process ended up being overall like really great. I did it because I wanted to get a, a win under the belt. We all wanted to get a win un, under our belts because we knew that inevitably like we were going to build something bigger and better and we needed kind of like a social proof point or like a proof point that we could as founders kind of take that across the line. Yeah, what a story. I can only imagine what those eight months were like. So what was the product all about? And what was it like going through the acquisition process? So the product was actually like the first ever mobile support chat plugin. So if you had a mobile app, you could just plug this into your app. And if you had customer support, you could use customer support. And it would be like a pop-up tab kind of a thing that you could have support while people were like browsing around the app. So way before Intercom, it was kind of the first ever of its kind. And the company that acquired us is called LivePerson. And they went public in, you know, the dot-com boom way back in the day. And they owned that customer service market, basically. So overall, it was like great experience. Moved out to like Tel Aviv for a better part of like, you know, four months or so. 
and got to really closely integrate with the product team over there. Really, like for me, building a startup zero to one is like what I love to do and what I've faced most of my challenges doing. And when we got acquired, there was a whole new set of challenges that I was excited about like going after, which is like, now I get to learn what it's like to navigate a 700 person company and get the things done that we want to get done. And that was interesting. That sounds like a great experience with some big challenges. So after that experience with a big corporate company, what brought you back to startups, specifically the role as a lead product designer at Learnist? And how did you create the opportunity to join the team there? Yeah. So after working at Live Person, again, Live Person is like a 700 person company. I really wanted to, I didn't want to get dull. I wanted to keep my abilities sharp in the startup thing because I knew inevitably I wanted to start something that was like a much larger company, a startup that was grandiose idea, like the big swing, they say, right? And to do that, I wanted to get involved again with startups and, you know, be in a good position there. And one of my closest friends is actually one of the co-founders of AngelList, Nivi, and his brother is Farb and Farb is also now one of my closest friends and he's the founder of Learnist. You know, we talked about jamming, sat down, jammed out a few ideas. They were seeing tremendous traction at the time. They just raised, I think, 20 or so million dollar round from like Benchmark and Atlas Ventures who also invested in Chill. And I got to know some of those guys earlier on at that company. And I knew I wanted to get back into startups. It was all just kind of like opportunistic and worked out. You know, I joined really because I wanted to wanted to like own that product and own a product at like a different scale of a company. So like if you were to go back, Chill was like, I guess, five, six people at the time. Look.io was like three or four, three to five of us, I think. Live person ended up being like 700, which is totally different. But Learnist was in the sweet spot of like 30 people, 30 to 40 people. So it was like, how, like, what is that like going in there and owning product at that scale and owning design at that scale? So I was really interested in that. And also I was interested in like continuing to invest in my relationship with Atlas, which is now they're called Accomplice, uh, which is like a, like a VC fund, but at the time Atlas. And I was like, okay, this is actually a great opportunity. Like Benchmark has invested. They're huge, you know, top tier venture capital firm. There's Accomplice. Like I could see myself building better and better relationships with them and investing in that relationship would be like, this is going to be the people that they've seen me go from company A to company B and like kind of prove my work and have my work show some upside for the company. So those are some of the reasons that I decided to go in there. That's awesome. So based on your experience working with companies at different scales, what were some of the challenges involved in leading people and product in those different situations? What it always comes down to at scale is integration, like making sure that people have buy-in, making sure that you're not alienating people at any kind of scale, but you're also like, there's a fine line between saying like, there are enough people that are involved in this that have say that people are really excited about it. But there aren't too many people that you're just not getting anything done. So I think there's a pretty fine line there. And that's always a challenge kind of at any scale. With startups, people, engineers, designers, product people, like people have options, right? And you're working with a lot of smart people that have decided to work at a company that is at a smaller scale rather than going to like one of the bigger companies that are out there, like, you know, Facebook, Google, like what have you. So everybody's very opinionated. And it's humbling because you realize like these people are probably smarter than you and a lot of regards, listen to everybody, 
and incorporate everybody's vision in, in some way that doesn't inhibit a factor of time, right? That's always been kind of a challenge at many of these scales. It's, it's obviously like way, way more different, a 700 person company than at a 40 person company, but people, 700 person company there, it's just like a different kind of attitude where people are wanting to go in, they work on one product as opposed to like necessarily a slew of products. So the focus is different. Also, the buy-in is different. The larger your company gets, the less it has that, the startup hours, I guess, per se. And learn is, you know, people tend to work probably harder because there was, there was a lot more upside to be seen and a lot more excitement and buy-in. Yeah, those are some major challenges and all unique to the various stages each of those companies were at, as you pointed out. And so with the goal of experience as much as possible before diving back into startups, today you're the founder and CEO of Overnight. Can you tell us a bit more about what Overnight is and what motivated you to launch it? Yeah. So when I was at Learnest, I was actually commuting back and forth between LA and SF every week. So I was flying like 120 times a year. It's crazy. And obviously traveling a ton. So my home was sitting empty half the time in Los Angeles. And because I was traveling last minute, a lot of the places that I was staying at in San Francisco were hotels. And I realized like that was pretty dumb. Like there's no great last minute solution. So overnight is something different from what it was when we first started. Just to kind of draw a line, even though we ended up changing the name. I'll just say previously it was called Crashpad. And what that product looked like was like people said like Hotel Tonight for Airbnb. It was just like an easy way to like find a place to stay within a few minutes. Now Overnight focuses on, it's crazy to think that if people wanted to list their homes and share their homes, that their only option to do that is like a public forum. If you were to line up 10 people and say like, you know, hey, who wants to list your home on Airbnb? Like maybe two people in a coastal area in a city would say, yeah, I'm totally into it. But the amount of people that would open their homes to friends or friends of friends or like somebody that's like within their community or any number of communities that they're a part of is way bigger. So we wanted to create a home for all of these homes that won't necessarily list publicly. People can list publicly, but like things like friends and friends of friends and like, you know, password protected listings and like being able to like help people share their homes with the people that they trust is kind of our MO right now. And we have a group of women is like one example. We have 20,000 women that are in a group. It's almost like a Facebook group, right? And these 20,000 women are opening their homes to one another far more than in any other public marketplace. Like they're happy to open and share their homes. So we're seeing a lot more crossover between like guests and hosts, which is great. And, and we want to expand that ultimately to a point where like we want to destigmatize transactions between friends. Like what that means is like you should be able to search New York when you're going to New York and see some cool listings that you could obviously book. Maybe you don't know these people or maybe they're in your extended network, but also see like the homes from your friends that would be open to hosting people. It's crazy to see like, you know, say you go to New York, you run into a friend at a bar. They're like, oh, my God, why didn't you reach out and let me know? You totally should have stayed at my place for free. That like there's no discovery for that. There's no way to, to kind of solve that problem of like knowing which friends are in what city and are willing to host. But that's obviously harder to come out and say we want to do. So that's why we're focusing on groups and networks. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of like draw a line between like Crashpad was how it all started. And it was all focused on last minute. The thing with that was just like same day, need a place to stay basically right now, drop a pin, set a radius that broadcasted out to hosts in that area. And then you would get like a push notification that's like, hey, Asher's in your area looking for a place to stay. Is your place available? That was pretty interesting because like if you opted into that, I would see your place. 
So that gave you ultimate control over like who was able to see your place. And it gave me as like the traveler, I was able to see exactly the places that were available like right now and tonight. So it was a great idea. I still has like a soft spot in my heart for it because it was like cool, just like a concept car is cool. But you know, it's really difficult to do. When we launched that crash pad in in, uh, Austin, it was at South by Southwest. Somebody would make a request and that would broadcast out to the host and People were getting three responses in the first minute, 10, 15, within 10 to 15 minutes. We're like, wow, this is working. It's crazy. We actually did this. But it turns out, you know, when somebody picks 10 mile radius in Los Angeles and within a few minutes, they have 30 listings to pick from. And at best they pick one, only one host wins. So we saw that writing on the wall for that and saying like, okay, we we wanted to make sure that we were able to kind of like best cater to our hosts and making sure that they were getting notified when people were really interested in booking their places. So that's how, uh, that's one of the reasons that we ended up focusing on overnight and the, the community focus that we've been working on now. That's amazing. Love the evolution of the company and mission. And so along that way, Overnight has raised just under 3 million as seed funding. So what advice do you have to share with others when it comes to raising capital? We were lucky. And part of that was a result. When I say lucky, I mean, I invested my time and in energy really working for these VCs across different portfolio companies of theirs before asking for anything. So I spent six years between several portfolio companies of Accomplice who ended up leaving our round without any asks. I just wanted to go heads down, crank out some of the best work that I could possibly crank out. And then at the end of the day, knowing I was going to start something and that these guys were going to be some of the first ones that I called on. And that worked. So we raised, we did two rounds back to back, both pre-product. One was, you know, we raised like 500,000. We were actually aiming to raise like 200 or sorry, 250. And then just kept coming in and we're like, oh man, what are we going to do? Like we have to draw a line somewhere on this. And we spoke to some friends that get some advice in terms of what to do because we were still getting inbound. So in that regards, we were definitely lucky. It's like when you have that kind of momentum, it's great. <laughs> that That's pretty unique. So especially pre-product. So uh, at that point, you know, one of our leads, Dustin was uh, one of the founders of Maiden Lane and was at Accomplice. He sat me down. And he's like, listen, like we want to lead your seed round. We've got you up to a million and a half. Like go get the other 500,000. Let's close this thing in the next few weeks and off to the races. So in that regard, like Dustin's an amazing supporter and I've known him for years and it's been awesome watching him kind of like go through his evolutions from being like a principal to launching Maiden Lane and so forth. And for him to be that supportive is great and very probably unique at our stage, but we put in our time with with Accomplice and they knew what we were capable of. So it kind of checked off this like check mark of like, who are these guys? Which if a VC fund doesn't really know you at all, then not only you're combating with selling somebody on your grand vision, but they're trying to filter you as much as possible and like understand, like vet you as much as possible. If the vetting's already done and the market seems like a good opportunity and they trust the team is capable of doing it, then it gets a lot easier. So I'd say build relationships that are long-term and invest in those. Again, I spent six years without any asks and also create momentum. That's what startups are. Like startups are momentum. That's everything from recruiting to raising money. It's like if you're showing momentum, you're going to be able to get people excited and people behind you and you're going to be able to raise money. And that means various different things for various different companies. But it's 
probably like the most palatable thing where it's like, okay, you're building a home sharing company, build momentum. What does momentum look like? Get hosts, get guests. If you're building a SaaS company, having momentum could be like you're building fantastic product and you have like customers out the door that are waiting for this, right? That's showing tremendous amount of movement and potential. People get excited by that. Yeah, very well put. And so to dive into some of that a bit more, what's it been like transitioning from a product designer to the founder CEO role? Were there any challenges or benefits from your experience? Uh, I wouldn't say I've necessarily transitioned out of that entirely. It's more just like a left brain, right brain split. I'm doing both. I'm still doing our design. I'm still building a lot of our front end product. And it's a fun challenge. It's definitely one of these things where it's like, okay, well... (laughs) I guess like, why can't I do both of these things? I'll tell you, it takes a lot of time. So a lot of sleep, I don't sleep a lot. And I think like the way that I look at it is like, I'm really happy to invest this time and I love doing it. I look at companies is there's like BC and AD, but it's like before product market fit and after product market fit. And when you hit that inflection point, it's significantly easier to scale your skill set beyond just you. But before then, you have to grind on every angle. So I'm still wearing a lot of hats, right? It is a difficult balance, but I've like sort of catered our product release cycles around like, okay, we'll get this out. We're going to measure it. Now I'm going to go up to San Francisco for the next like week and I'll be doing it back and forth and I'll be, you know, running emails and, and doing the fundraising. Now we're back in the, in the mix and I'm super heads down, focused on whatever feature it is that we're building. And it's, it's, it's a balance. It's not easy, but it's, it's fun. Yeah, for sure. I think it's always fun to be, you know, really close to something that you're passionate about and working on. So kudos to you for being able to do that. Thanks. Yeah, it's a lot of sleepless nights, man, but I love it. Yeah, I can only imagine. So you've talked a bit about the evolution from Crashpad to overnight and now the focus on community. But what are some of the other big challenges around growing this type of marketplace? Are there any specific tactics or strategies that have proven to be really effective for you guys? The biggest challenge is basically making sure like it takes a lot of product to really do this right. And like we don't have a lot of bandwidth, right? So being able to be selective about the product that we're building and listening to hosts constantly, the problems kind of surface themselves where it's like we realized pretty early on that people had an idea of what a product was supposed to behave like. There, there's like a like a gold standard now for like if somebody wants to host, like what's there? So we knew we wanted to cater to some of these hosts, but there's a, a lot of product, right? So So finding that balance there has been a pretty interesting challenge. Moving away, obviously, from like last minute to like being community focused has been, that was definitely a challenge to say like, okay, we were, you know, almost religious about saying like, this is same day. That's it. We're not going to move beyond that. No calendars. We don't want people to have calendars. Well, it turns out like we're going to get a lot more bookings if we let people market their homes more than one day at a time. And we have a better shot of like building something that really facilitates the community that we want to facilitate. So that was a tough challenge was like saying like, when do you surrender one idea to kind of make that pivot, I guess. I think now we're starting to get to a point where we're finding fit and both guests and hosts are really excited about like what we're doing. We're starting to see more demand. Bookings are converting a lot better. It's starting to click in people's heads that, oh, I could list my home just to my friends or I could list my home to just my alumni or whatever groups. And that is all exciting and good. So the challenges are still ahead of us. And like now it's like, how do we grow? grow as quickly as possible? And how do we get more bookings to convert? Yeah, for sure. So on those two points, what's next for you in overnight in 2018? And how are you focused on driving the growth and increasing conversions? 
Yeah. So with Overnight in 2018, you're going to see a lot more community focused stuff. So like people being able to find, discover different communities, join a ton of communities and like different friend based stuff. So if you go on the site right now, actually, team and I just shipped something yesterday that we're really excited about, which is if you log in, you sign in through Facebook and you search like Los Angeles or San Francisco, assuming you have a decent amount of friends on Facebook or in your contacts or whatever, you're going to start seeing listings that you're able to filter by groups that you're in or friends of friends or even your friends. So you'll be able to say, all right, in San Francisco, show me only the places that are friends of mine or friends of friends. And it's cool because we want to be able to open up cities in a way that Airbnb doesn't do, that booking, like any hotel sites don't do, which is like, we want to make it as accommodating as possible and feel as warm as possible when you go to a city. And it's not always going to be, you know, the nicest decoration in somebody's home. It's going to be the fact that like you have friends or friends of friends there that you can just dive into that city and like they're able to to kind of like show you around. And it's super warm and accommodating. So we've seen that happen. We've seen that like with various tests that we've been running and like, now that we're able to kind of like expand on that, we're really excited to say like, it's a whole new kind of way to travel because like the warmth is just stronger than anything else that's out there. That's exciting. I'm really looking to see how things shape up for you guys this year. Thanks. <laughs> Me too. So do you have any recommendation on some great content that you come across lately? I'm like big on audiobooks as like just generally where I'm getting my content these days. I'll go back and forth between that and podcasts and blogs and so forth. But I've found like audiobooks are, are generally pretty interesting. So I think at different stages, there are like different types of content that I'd be interested in, whether it's the biography and like inspiring stories, which is everybody from like Disney to Jobs to Benjamin Franklin to Warren Buffett, right? To the tactical books, which are like hacking growth. And there are some really good ones on negotiation that I really liked, which is like bargaining for advantage is maybe one of the best negotiation books out there and influence and like very tactical, like in these scenarios, here are the things that you do to best negotiate. Those are fascinating to me as well. I just recently listened to the uh, the Everything Store, which is like the Jeff Bezos Amazon story and Principles by Ray Dalio, which is really good. It's definitely one of these ones where I've seen it so much. I'm like, oh, it can't be that great because like it's so hyped and commercialized and stuff. But it's it's phenomenal. So I would I would definitely recommend that. Also, you know, for people like most startups, statistically, like they fail and every startup goes through a really tough time. There was a book called The J Curve that was pretty fascinating by Howard Love. So I definitely recommend that too because it, it kind of goes from like this like oh we have a great idea let's build this let's ship this and then oh shit nobody's using it how do we get people to use it and going through that iteration pattern to to get to a point where it's actually working so i'd recommend that awesome there are a ton of great resources in there and we'll make sure that we link to them so others can check them out and so on that note we've covered a ton of ground over the course of the episode so do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you live by and you think other people should know about you know, my personal mottos probably differ from most, but I've always challenged myself personally to to get as close to the metal as possible to try and understand what it is that I'm doing. So if that meant I was building a product and I knew how to design, I wanted to learn engineering. If I was engineering and I was building front end and I knew that there was one thing that was missing, like every step of the way that seemed like a black box, I always wanted to decode that. So I would say like, be super curious and like have that because that curiosity, especially if you find something that you're passionate about, it's going to make those hundred hour weeks seem like nothing. 
And I'm not advocating <laughs> that everybody needs to work 100-hour weeks. But if you're working on something that you absolutely love and you have an insatiable curiosity for that, like pursue that as much as possible. Because not only are you going to have the best shot at winning that, but in the worst case scenario, if it doesn't work out, which statistically, again, these things don't, you will have at least had tremendous personal growth along the way. Absolutely. And I couldn't think of a better way to cap off this episode. Asher, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was awesome to have you on, man. You got it. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.